All right, now we're going to continue our series in Acts today. We're talking about Acts reenacted, and there's only a few more to go. We're just about, we're on the home stretch now. And uh, you know, we'll notice that Luke's account is actually starting to really motor along, and he's glossing over uh, points towards the end of the book. And uh, he's got a few things he wants to make towards the end, but he's just now going over ground really fast, which is good because we'll be going over ground pretty fast too. Uh, now, last week we talked about Paul's ministry in the cultural capital of the Roman Empire. And where was that, by the way? Where were we last week? Athens. Excellent. Okay, we were at Athens. That was said to be the cultural capital. It was the center of all things cultural and intellectual and, 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 um, and, and uh, what's the word I was looking for? Philosophical. See, that's a word I don't use often. And... And it was a really, um, it was a full-on, I know that that was a really loaded sermon uh, to go through. And, and the CDs are at the back there if you'd like to get something to digest that a bit more. Or you can download it on our website as well. And just, um, I, I believe it's a really important one to go through. It's, it's a really important thing to understand the mission that is before us. And, and that's a, that, that will give us a lot of keys to understanding the world around us. And Now, I talked at the end there that we had seven pillars of a culture to reach, right? And I talked about how there's different ways, different areas of, of life that we as the church can influence. We can reach all seven pillars. And uh, just before church, I was talking with young James here. And uh, you were in Melbourne over the week, right? Over last weekend. And uh, I'll, get that. I'll take a seat here. And now, what, what were you doing over there? What were you, what were you training for? Uh, CrossFit, which is an um, extreme sports uh, which involves every type of movement you can think of. So, yeah. It's an excellent thing, and um, that Shannon guy from Biggest Loser is a little bit into it, although I've seen him do pretty light stuff compared to what I've seen real men do. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a real full-on thing. Uh, and so you were training, and uh, you, you were um, just sort of hearing from different athletes and different backgrounds and stuff, weren't you? Yeah, look, I was just saying to Cam before we started here, it's, um, along my journey, um, I got into CrossFit, um, and CrossFit sort of brought me here. Um, in, in the fact that one of the the world champion, the two-time current world champion from the CrossFit Games, is actually a um, he's a, he's a big Christian. Um, I was saying to Cam how when he gets the opportunity, because he's got a lot of followers, say on on your social media, Twitter and um, Facebook, he actually when he gets the opportunity, because a lot of people do follow him, he actually just quotes Bible verses a lot of the time through his uh, through his work. And um, I believe in, in my experiences that that uh, if I can reach people through this and it's good enough for him and, and he reaches so many people, then why not? Um, and I think most people in the sporting industry, if you have a look, they've got some connection to, to God along the way, um, which I guess allows them to be at the top of the game. So it was, a, it was massive to me. So yeah. yeah, fair enough, yeah. Now, we were talking about um, uh, how we can reach a, a number of different cultural expressions within the life of, you know, through the influence of the church and Christianity. And, you know, look, over the last week or so, uh, you know, the guy, that song that we sung last week, Bless the Lord, O My Soul, you know, that 10,000 Reasons song, won a Grammy Award. All right, so that's actually international recognition for a Christian man singing a song of worship and, and having people go, wow, that's, you know, that's, we, you know, it's, they're just practical insights as how we are able to influence 
in different ways and different areas of life and and uh, I just figured I'd just give a bit of a taste and a bit of inspiration there to make it a bit more practical there's loads of AFL footballers are uh, uh, Christians and uh, influencing that way loads of NRL rugby guys are also sharing their stories around youth ministries and stuff like that and and uh, loads of people in extreme sports and CrossFit and these sort of things there's loads of Christians in amongst that that's just a really good uh, example even professional wrestling there's a large number of Christians in that too and I'm a fan of that so uh, <laughs> so uh, but yeah it's just uh it was just interesting to to hear that so now we're going to move on now from there from athens luke motors along and we read how how paul visits corinth and and has a great time there we see synagogue leaders and gentiles and all these people coming to christ in a really uh powerful way and he's able to set up base and spend 18 months there he's able to set up a business and and work and engage with his community really well and and he's there for 18 months i won't go into detail about that because we will preach on one and two corinthians at some point and I'll give you the context then. There's a load of controversial text in that, women in ministry and, and all sorts of stuff gets covered in 1 Corinthians and it's best to know the context at the time we looked at that letter, so I'll look at it then. Following that, Paul briefly visits Ephesus and eventually goes to Antioch and Jerusalem, which completes his second missionary journey. And then sometime later, he's able to leave Syria and go on a third journey and he goes through his native homeland, around Galatia and that sort of stuff and, and eventually comes down the highway from... Um, from, uh, from Lystra across through to Ephesus. And our text is picking up here just as he's on his way into town. So we're going to pick up a slightly different approach today and I'm going to look at our, our text in a little bit of a different light. Uh, over the last few weeks, I've been talking about the mission field all around us. But today, I believe it's time to get a little bit personal. And uh, I just preach the text as I find it. And I believe that this is a very personal text, more so and an instructive one for us personally. And then it will affect how we teach others as well. But it's good to start with me first and start with us first as we go into this particular part of the scriptures. So we're going to go to Acts chapter 18 and we're going to start at verse 24 today. And we've got a bit of Bible, but we'll motor through it. We'll be fine. Starting at verse 24 of chapter 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, although he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Now we'll keep going to chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the, took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, what then, what, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied and there were about 12 men in all. Now our text opens with a young and interesting Egyptian named uh, Apollos. And he's a long way from home over there in sunny Ephesus. 
He came from the second biggest city in the Roman Empire of the time, and, uh, which was uh, Alexandria. And uh, he was a Jew from that region. And that's not surprising because a quarter of the population there were in fact Jewish. We also know that the Greek Old Testament, which we understand, which we call the Septuagint, is actually, was actually produced in Alexandria. It's no surprise that he was educated because that was a big deal in that part of the world. It was home to one of the top three universities and intellectual centers of the, of the world. And it's no surprise that he, as a Jew, would have a great grasp of the Old Testament because everything had been done to make it accessible in his own language. And it appears that he has a good grasp on the person of Jesus Christ and can teach it quite accurately and quite passionately as he's going around. It's a pretty good start to see, a really good guy to sort of engage with here. Now, as we go on into the next chapter, we see that Paul arrives in Ephesus and encounters a group of 12 interesting locals. We don't know much more than that, except that they have all the appearance of godliness and talk in a way that is consistent with the other believers that Paul has both met and made in his travels. But something seems a little bit off with both Apollos and the Ephesians 12. There's an intangible thing going on that causes the mature Christians around them, Priscilla, Aquila and Paul, to question where these guys are truly at. They all saw the same thing in these men. And they lovingly and sensitively and even discreetly took the time to try and determine what that intangible thing actually was. Something just didn't sit right. After a couple of questions, it becomes abundantly clear. Their faith experience is limited to what they learned from the influence of John the Baptist. Now, there was definitely something really special about that guy. If you read the first chapter of Luke's gospel, you'll see that he and Jesus, in the earthly sense, were in fact related, and that he was born from a miraculous arrival. His, his mum was a pretty old lady and, 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 and conceived even in her older years. We read in John chapter 1 that he was sent by God. And whenever he spoke of himself, he, he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, as a sign that his presence is in line with Old Testament prophecy. But we also see that he's positioned to prepare the people to hear and receive Jesus. He tells his disciples that he would need to decrease in order for Jesus to increase. And he speaks of Jesus as the Lamb of God and the one whom his ministry pointed to. Luke chapter 16, Jesus says this, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until up to and including John. Since that time, since John, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and people are forcing their way into it. In other words, Jesus viewed John as the final statement of the old covenant prophets. He was not the theme of the New Testament. Instead, he was the bridge between the two periods in the history of the church age, of the people of God. All of the Old Testament and covenant was designed to anticipate Jesus and to prepare for his coming, including the teaching of John the Baptist. People who embraced that still lived in Old Covenant mindset. The baptism that John did was one of purification, repentance, and anticipation. 
because things were about to get really interesting and their Messiah was arriving at any moment. This was a time of purification. People were anticipating the Messiah because John the Baptist was there to announce it. And he's saying, get baptized, get purified, get yourself in a place where you can hear with clarity the things this guy is about to teach you, the Messiah is about to teach you. That's what John's role was. It was something those that wanted to be godly certainly did. But it was not a baptism of salvation. It was preparation for the coming of Christ and readiness to embrace his teaching. A disciple who went through that process and nothing else only had half the gospel story and they only had a fleeting understanding of the salvation that was actually available to them as a result these people would have seen their godliness through the lens of their preparation and their works and they certainly wouldn't have seen their godliness or their righteousness identified with a cross or the resurrection essentially Apollos and in the Ephesus 12 were living out their faith in a very limited and, dare I say, misguided way. Their faith was still in a state of preparation or anticipation. They were not living in true revelation. They were doing the right things to appear holy to God and others, but they didn't know Jesus intimately. They embraced the teaching of Jesus and acknowledged his heavenly origin, but they didn't truly know his redemption. They saw and heard Jesus from afar, but they didn't know the risen Jesus that dwelt intimately in their heart. They'd separated themselves, they'd set themselves apart, but without a true grasp of the cross, they were not saved. They were not disciples of Christ, they were observers. In church today, There are wonderful, God-honoring, generous, hospitable, clean-living, regular-attending, serving, and faithful people who are missing that intangible and are actually living in a state where they're actually not saved. They might be ensconced within the life of of their local congregation and loved by the people and living in a way that Jesus would no doubt be proud. But within their spirit, something's not quite right. It's almost as if their church community connection seems more real than their connection with Jesus. They're the life of the church party, but when it comes to Jesus himself, they're on the outside looking in. We see that that situation is abundantly clear when Paul addresses this audience of 12 that he finds in Ephesus. Let me paraphrase that. So, fellas, tell me about your salvation experience. Well, Paul... It started when we heard that John guy telling us to get ready for something big. John guy, John guy, I know the Apostle John. Ah, John the Baptist? Yeah, that wild and woolly guy. Excellent. Yeah, well, he was a pretty cool guy, and he had an amazing job to do. But what happened after that? Well, he told us to go get baptized, because that was a good godly thing to do. We got all dunked and purified, and we were ready. Excellent. So when he pointed you to Jesus, what happened? Well... We just went there, we heard him talk. Tell you what, he made us think about our life a bit. There's pretty good values there. I like that. What do you think about his death? Pretty sad. Seemed a bit unjust. Okay, then how does the resurrection hit sit with you? 
the what? Jesus rose again. Really? What about the Holy Spirit living within you today? There's a Holy Spirit. There was the line. This has some pretty strong parallels with conversations I've had over my life of faith. How did tell me about how you became a follower of Jesus? Well, I came as a kid or moved to this community and made some good friends here in the church and it just made sense to keep on coming. Sweet, what about your faith? Well, I got baptized as a kid because my folks sort of pointed me that direction and I guess I've been around it. Sweet, but when did you actually place your faith in Jesus? I, I'm not sure what I know what you mean. Well, did you ever come to a point where you looked to the cross and said, Jesus, save me? Have you ever made a personal decision to turn from your sin and give yourself to following Jesus? Have you ever had that assurance that Jesus is alive and well in your heart? Many times, I've actually found that the answer to that question is no. And I've been able to lead people through prayers of salvation and actually lead them into that right standing with God. Are we disciples? Are we followers of Christ? Baptized in His name? Filled with His risen Spirit? Or are we observers of Jesus? Part of the scene in human terms, but our heart is standing on the outside looking in. Does it even matter? Philippians 2.12 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's the complete opposite of casual observance. Are we saved? Is Jesus truly living within? Are we truly following Jesus and living under the mercy and the perspective of the cross? That's one difficult question out of the way. Let's keep reading. <laughs> Acts chapter 19, verses 11 onwards. Let's get through this. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed to what they had done. A number had practiced sorcery, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, Ephesus was another incredibly idolatrous city. And the worship styles there left a trail of emotional and spiritual destruction in those that served those pagan gods. I won't go into detail about Ephesus because 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, book of Ephesians, part of Revelation, 1, 2, 3, John, all are centered around that. So we'll give you context later on. But we read here that people are being set free from their destructive behaviors and that even demonic spirits are clearing out at the name of Jesus. People are going as far as taking Paul's sweaty aprons and hankies, the things he'd throw aside after a day on the tools. 
place them on sick and demonic people and see them get set free and healed. Now, this showed us a few things. First up, it shows the clear, extraordinary anointing that was on Paul's life that was needed for the ministry at hand right there. We don't have demons running around our uh, Murphy, Murphy Street that we need to control. With, you know, it's, not, it's a different sort of anointing that we need to serve here, right? You know, it was a pretty extraordinary need that was going on here. This wasn't a televangelist praying on a silk cloth and putting it in the mail and hoping it's going to do something for your friend. Right? This was actually a very real and very powerful thing going on here. Second, it was a clear statement to the priests and the followers of the false gods of the city. In a place where you were required to wear pure white during your worship service in all the pagan temples, and where you could be cast out of your religion and your temple for wearing anything less, God uses sweaty old, dirty old sweat rags to show the power of God over all that crisp, clear appearance of whiteness. It's pretty cool. The name of Jesus is clearly being exalted and the city is in a state of deep reverence for what is going on here. We read here about people who are getting serious and naming their sins publicly. Can you imagine if someone just knocked on our door right now and come running in and said, I've had been having an affair for five years, I need to get things right? God hastes the day where people get that clear and get that, that honest and get that repentant. But no, we haven't seen that in a long time. And we read about a 50,000 drachma bonfire where they're burning spells and other items of witchcraft you know, and false religion and stuff. Now, a drachma was a day's wage for a professional and two days' wage for a laborer. By Australian standards, about seven or eight million dollars worth of gear there in today's standards. Then in amongst all that awesomeness, we read about seven interesting gentlemen all who are seemingly sons of a Jewish priest. And we see that they're clearly captivated by everything that's going on. And as believers in the God of Israel, they will be rightfully happy that their God is getting a bit of attention in this otherwise pagan city. So they make an attempt to get in on the act. And as we read the text, it kind of reads in a bit of a humorous way on paper. Yeah, I remember hearing this in youth group, and they had to run away naked there. <laughs> but it's actually quite intense when you think about it. They see the power that is coming from these messengers and they correctly identify that the power is coming from the name of Jesus. And so they take a locally spiritually disturbed pagan and attempt to perform an exorcism using the mantra that they thought they knew they should use. Leave him in the name of that Jesus guy that Paul's talking about. Now, these guys are working on what we call today second-hand faith. They've been close enough to hear about it all and make the right noises about this Christian faith, but there's no conviction in their spirit, and as a result, no power in their attempt of ministry. Because their faith is not about the Jesus they know, there's no power. Instead, it's faith in the Jesus they've simply heard about. We know that Timothy traveled with Paul, right? We've talked about him and a few other times. He remained as a bishop of Ephesus. And Paul writes to him in 2 Timothy 3.5, and he says that, and we see that Paul teaches him to be aware that in Ephesus, you're going to find people like that. 
you know, people have a form of godliness. They're going to have an appearance or a loose association with godly things. But they would live in a way that contradicts the power or the substance of their faith. They'll have the form but not the power. That's what the verse says. That's exactly what these seven guys are at right now. They had a mechanical second-hand devotion that duplicated only the form of faith without replicating any substance. Because it's caught, not taught. They soon learned that taking such a hollow approach in such a spiritually hostile place was not going to end well. And the evil spirit here tells him that they could, he could see through the facade and he had no intention of moving on and instead he decides to wreak havoc on them as well. You know, there are people in church like that today as well. Like I said earlier, we have the trappings of religion. We're attending, we're serving, we're saying the right things, but the Jesus that we speak of can sometimes be the Jesus of somebody else. The Jesus of our parents, Jesus of our friends, Jesus of our mentors, even the Jesus of our spouse. It's quite similar to the story here. In this story with these priests, it was the Jesus of Paul, not the Jesus of them. Which means anything that they would try to do in his name would fall in the dust. If it's not a first-hand Jesus... It's not going to have any effectual power in our lives. So if you're trying to conquer a habit in a second-hand understanding of Jesus, there's no power in that. You've got to know Jesus for yourself. In ourselves, we won't see the power of that. And in others, if we try to help others in the name of Jesus, it's going to be pretty much our own strength and you'll be going alone. Good luck. Is Jesus ours or somebody else's? I'm going to wind up there. Now, I know that seems like a totally left-field sermon, given the way we've been going over the last few months. We've been talking about this big mission field and going to all the world and talking about all these great things. But I think it's a good time to examine ourselves now before we get launched into this whole mission thing that our church is going to do. Because if we don't have our Jesus right... We're not going to be making disciples of Jesus. We're going to be making disciples of ourselves. I can tell you all about the exciting mission field that's all around us. But there's an off chance that some of that mission field has been sitting here all along. So lovingly and discreetly and in the safety of this building and people, I'm going to ask a couple of pressing, concluding questions this morning. Two questions to remember, and I'll explain these as we go. You can close your eyes. You can allow God to maybe speak. or, In fact, let's pray before I ask these things. Jesus, we ask for your presence in this place today. We ask for a sense of your love and your drawing power in this place today. We ask for that conviction within every one of us. Not the condemnation of the enemy, but the conviction of the Spirit. 
we understand that condemnation tries to drive us away from Jesus because it tells us we're unworthy. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit draws us towards repentance. I pray that there will be a presence of conviction in this room today. I pray there will be a sense of your love in this place today. And open our hearts that you may minister to us today. First question is this. Am I saved? Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Maybe you're a long timer. Might have been baptized or gone through a traditional rite of some sort. And it ties you theoretically to the Christian faith. But spiritually you might not have done all that much with it. Maybe you feel you've booked your ticket to heaven based on service that you've put into the church but haven't given the cross a lot of thought. Maybe you've been a keen observer of this faith and the teaching of Jesus but have not made the faith step of becoming an insider and an intimate follower. We can observe all we like, we can serve all we like, we can do the rituals all that we like. But if we've never made a personal choice to place our faith in Christ, and if we don't look to the work of the cross to save us, everything falls short. Will we be like the Apollos and the twelve at Ephesus today who heard the truth and responded in the right way and said, Yes, I surrender, Jesus, I will follow you, save me. Another way of looking at that is this, is Jesus mine or somebody else's? Can you say with absolute certainty that you know Jesus? Can you say that you're walking in his resurrected power? Or can you only point to the faith of someone else that you embrace through tradition, admiration or heritage? When these seven silly guys tried to do something in the borrowed name of Jesus, their flawed understanding was quickly exposed. When we walk in that true first-hand, intimate and powerful experience of Jesus, we become the empowered people we're supposed to be in him. Anything less is not going to cut it in our lives now, but also in eternity. The Bible says, As many who believed, he gave power to become the sons and daughters of God. And the saying is true. God has no grandchildren. Maybe you're in a place where you want to put things right. We're going to close our eyes. We're going to go into some prayer. I'm going to... I'm going to pray for us as a church and I'm going to lead you through a prayer if you'd like to make that prayer of faith in Christ today. And then we're going to worship God. I'll get the band up, please. Jesus, we come to you now and we ask you to open our hearts to your word. And at this time, we ask you to open our hearts to your prompting and make us aware of your drawing within us right now. I ask you, Lord, to Help us to make that step of continually keeping you front and center. Help us to look at you through the, the lens of the cross, not the lens of our work. Through the indwelling spirit that you give us when we say yes to you.
not at the rituals that we might have done in our past. Lord, for those of us who are simply living in preparation, I pray you'd help us to get over that edge into revelation this morning. If you'd like to pray with me, pray in in your heart of hearts. And you can let me know where you're at later and let me know how this went for you, but I, I don't need to know. This is between you and God. But I'm going to give you the chance to pray this anyway. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I know that you're there. I believe that you lived and you died for my sin and you rose again on the third day. I ask you, Jesus, to now come into my heart, to come into my life. I choose to follow you today and I make you the Lord of my life. Jesus, please save me from my sinful self and clothe me in your righteousness instead. I thank you, Jesus. Amen.